Chapter 3 Hell Its Certainty, What It Is, and How to Escape It And if thy right eye causeth thee to stumble, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not thy whole body be cast into hell. Matthew chapter 5 verse 29 My subject in this chapter is hell, its certainty, what it is, and how to escape it. If I were to choose my own subject, I certainly would never choose this. I always address it with reluctance and pain. It is an awful subject. But a minister of God has no right to choose his own subjects. He must go to God for them, and I am confident that God wishes me to address this awful subject. I wish that I could believe that there was no hell. That is, I wish that I could believe that all men would come to repentance and accept Christ and that hell would be unnecessary. Of course, if men persist in sin and in the rejection of Christ, God's glorious Son, I cannot help but recognize that it is right that there should be a hell and that hell should continue as long as men persist in their sin and rejection of Christ. If men will choose sin, it is for the good of the universe and the glory of God that there should be a hell to confine them in, but I wish with all my heart that all men would repent and thus render hell unnecessary as far as the human race is concerned. I do not wish to believe it if it is not true, but I would rather believe and preach unpleasant truth than to believe and preach pleasant error. And as awful as the thought is, I have been driven to the conclusion that there is a hell. I once honestly believed and taught that all men, even the devil, would ultimately come to repentance so that hell would cease to be. But I came to the conclusion that I could not honestly reconcile this position with the teaching of Christ and the apostles. I was driven to this alternative, that I must either give up my Bible or give up my eternal hope. I could not give up the Bible. I had become thoroughly convinced that the Bible, beyond a doubt, was the very Word of God. I could not, in honesty, twist and distort the Scriptures to make them agree with what I wanted to believe. As an honest man, there was only one thing left for me to do, and that was to give up my opinion that all men would ultimately come to repentance and be saved. I know perfectly well that if a man stands squarely on the teaching of Christ and the apostles and declares it without fear, he will be called narrow, harsh, and cruel. But as to being narrow, I have no desire to be any broader than Jesus Christ. As to being cruel, is it cruel to tell men the truth? Isn't it the kindest thing that one can do to declare the whole counsel of God and to point out to men the full measure of their danger? Suppose that I'm walking down a railroad track, knowing that far behind me there's a train coming that is loaded with happy vacationers, men, women, and children full of joy and glee. I come to a place where I had assumed there was a bridge across the chasm, but to my horror, I find that the bridge is down. I say to myself, I must go back at once and stop that oncoming train. I hurry back and do my best to stop the train. I interrupt the people with the awful announcement that the bridge is down and they are in peril of a frightful disaster. I spoil the merriment of the evening, and I banish the bright thoughts from their minds and replace them with horrid thoughts of imminent disaster. Would that be cruel? No. Wouldn't it be the kindest thing that I could do? Suppose, on the other hand, that when I had found the bridge down, I had said, 
These people are so happy, I cannot bear to disturb their night's lightheartedness and gaiety. That would be too cruel. Instead, I will sit down here and wait until the train comes. So I sit down while the train comes rushing on, unaware of the danger, and plunges into that awful abyss. Soon the despairing shrieks and groans of the wounded and mangled are rising as those vacationers crawl out from among the corpses of the dead. Would that be kind? No. Wouldn't it be the cruelest thing that I could do? In my country, if I acted that way, I would be arrested for manslaughter. I have been down the track. I had supposed that there was a bridge across the chasm. I have found that the bridge is down. I have discovered that many of you who are now full of gaiety and joy are rushing, unwarned, of the awful fate that awaits you. I have come back up the track to warn you. I may ruin, for the time, your joyfulness and merriment, but by God's grace I will save you from the awful doom. Is that cruel? No. Isn't it the kindest thing that I can do? I would much rather be called cruel for being kind than being called kind for being cruel. The cruelest man on earth is the man who believes the stern things we are told in the Word of God about the future penalties of sin, but refrains from declaring them because they are unpopular. I will not give you my own speculations about the future destiny of the unrepentant. My speculations would be worth as much as those of other men and no more. They would be worth practically nothing at all. Man's speculations on such a subject are without any value. God knows. We don't. But God has been pleased to tell us much of what He knows about it. Let us listen to Him. One ounce of God's revelation about the future is worth a hundred tons of man's speculation. One hears on every side, I think so-and-so about the future life. What difference does it make what you think? The question is, what does God say? You will find my text in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. And if thy right eye causeth thee to stumble, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not thy whole body be cast into hell. You will notice I take my text from the Sermon on the Mount. I take it from the Sermon on the Mount for two reasons. First, because it exactly suits my purpose. Second, because a great many men in our day say they believe in the Sermon on the Mount, though they do not believe in the whole Bible. So, I have taken my text from that part of the Bible that you all say you believe. And you will notice I have taken it from the American Standard Version. I have done that for two reasons. First, because the American Standard Version is a more accurate translation in this instance than the authorized version. And second, because a great many men say that the American Standard Version has done away with hell. Well, there seems to be plenty of it left in the text. But, you say, that text is highly figurative. Very well, let it go at that. It at least means this much. Almost anything is better than going to hell, and that is my chief proposition at this moment. Almost anything is better than going to hell. What I have to say will come under three headings. First, the certainty of hell. Second, the character of hell. And third, how to escape hell. The Certainty of Hell It is certain that there is a hell, 
Some people will tell you that all the scholarly ministers and clergymen have denied the orthodox hell. That simply is not so. That kind of argument is a favorite argument with men who know that they have a weak case and try to bolster up a weak case by strong assertion. It is true beyond a doubt that some scholarly ministers have denied the orthodox hell, but they never doubt it for reasons of Greek or New Testament scholarship. They refute it for purely sentimental and speculative reasons. No man can go to the New Testament to discover what it really teaches, not to see how he can twist it into conformity with the speculations that he wishes to believe and not find hell in the New Testament. But suppose it were true. Suppose that every scholarly minister had given up believing in the orthodox hell. It would not prove anything. Everybody who is familiar with the history of the world and the history of the church knows that time after time the scholars have previously quit believing in doctrines that in the final outcome proved to be true. There were no scholars in Noah's day except Noah who believed there would be a flood, but the flood came just the same. There were no scholars in Lot's day except Lot who believed that God would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but he did. Jeremiah and one friend were the only leading men in all Jerusalem who believed what Jeremiah taught about the coming destruction of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar, but history outside the Bible as well as history inside the Bible tells us that it came true to the very letter, though no scholars believed it. Every leading school of theology in the days of Jesus Christ, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and the Essenes, scoffed at Jesus Christ's prediction about the coming judgment of God upon Jerusalem. But secular history tells us that in spite of the descent of all the scholars, it came true just as Jesus Christ predicted. There was not a university in the world and scarcely a leading scholar in the days of Martin Luther and John Huss that had not denied faith in the doctrine of justification by faith until Huss and Luther and their colleagues came. They had to establish a new university to stand for the truth of God. But today, we know that Martin Luther was right, and every university of Germany, France, England, and Scotland was wrong. So if it were true that every scholarly preacher on earth had quit believing in the doctrine of the orthodox of hell, it would not prove anything. I say that hell is certain. Why? First, because Jesus Christ said so, and the apostles said so, and God said so. If you want the words of Jesus Christ, turn to Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Read the words of Paul the Apostle. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-9 through If you want the words of the Apostle John, Turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. If any was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. Then read the words of the apostle Peter. For if God spared not angels when they sinned, but cast them down to hell, and committed them to pits of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment unto the day of judgment. 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 and 9
If you want the words of the Apostle Jude, turn to Jude chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. The Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their works of ungodliness which they have ungodly wrought and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jesus himself spoke of hell. After he had died and gone down into the abode of the dead, after he had risen again and ascended unto the right hand of his Father, he said, But for the fearful, and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and fornicators, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part shall be in the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. I say that hell is certain because Jesus Christ and the apostles say so, because God says so through them. The only thing countering it is the speculation of the theologians and the dreams of poets. The words of Christ have stood the test of eighteen centuries and always proved true in the final outcome every time. No school of theological speculation has ever stood the test of even eighteen years, and when I have Christ on one side and speculative theologians on the other, it doesn't take me long to decide which to believe. In the second place, I say that hell is certain because experience, observation, and common sense prove that there is a hell. One of the most certain facts of every man's experience is that where there is sin, there must be suffering. We all know that. The second certain fact of observation is that the longer a man continues in sin, the deeper he sinks into it and into the ruin, shame, agony, and despair that are the outcomes of all sin. There are hundreds and thousands of people in your city in a very practical hell, and the hell is getting worse every day. You may not know how to reconcile what these people suffer with the doctrine that God is love, but no intelligent man gives up obvious facts because he cannot explain the philosophy of them, and this is an obvious fact. Now, if this process continues, men sink ever deeper and deeper into ruin, shame, and despair. When the time of possible repentance has passed, and it will be passed sometime, what is left but an everlasting hell? The only alternative is the dreams of poets and the speculations of would-be philosophers. But the speculations of philosophers have proved an ignis fatus, something deceptive from the very dawn of history. When on the one hand I have the teaching of observation, experience, and common sense, and on the other hand I only have the speculations of philosophers and the dreams of poets, it doesn't take me long to decide which to believe. But when, in addition to the teaching of observation, experience, and common sense in its conflict with the speculations of cloistered theologians, we have the sure teaching of the Word of God, the case is settled. There is a hell. It is more certain that there is a hell than that when you lie down to sleep tonight, you will wake again tomorrow morning. You probably will, but you may not. However, it is certain that there is a hell. The next time you buy a skillfully written book, or hear an eloquent lecturer and pay a shilling or two shillings or four shillings to have some man prove to you that there is no hell, you are paying to be made a fool of. There is a hell. The Characteristics of Hell Suffering First, hell is a place of extreme bodily suffering. That is plain from the teaching of the New Testament. 
The most common words to express the doom of the unrepentant are death and destruction. What do death and destruction mean? God has taken pains to define His terms. His definition of destruction is in Revelation chapter 17 verse 8, as compared with Revelation chapter 19 verse 20 and chapter 20 verse 10. In Revelation chapter 17 verse 8, we are told that the beast goes into perdition. The word there translated perdition is the same word which is translated destruction elsewhere and should be so translated here, or it should be translated differently in the other passages. Now, if you can find where the beast goes, you have God's own definition of perdition or destruction. Revelation chapter 19 verse 20 says that the beast and the false prophet were cast alive into the lake of fire that burneth with brimstone. Then in Revelation chapter 20 verse 10, you are told that a thousand years later the devil also is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where are also the beast and the false prophet, and they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. By God's own definition, perdition or destruction is a place in a lake of torment forever and ever. Now let's look at God's definition of death. You will find it in Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. The fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and fornicators and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part shall be in the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. God's definition of death is a portion in the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone, just the same as His definition of perdition. Oh, but somebody says, that is all highly figurative. Very well, I don't care to contend that, but remember that God's figures stand for facts. Some people will say it is figurative when they come to something unwelcome in the Bible and imagine that they have done away with it altogether. You have not done away with it by calling it figurative. What does the figure mean? God is no liar, and God's figures never overstate the facts. It means at least this much, bodily suffering of the most intense kind. Remember furthermore, in the next life we do not exist as disembodied spirits. All this theory so common today of the immortality of the soul independent of the body where we float around as bodiless spirits is Platonic philosophy and not New Testament teaching. According to the Bible, in the world to come the redeemed spirit has a body, not this same body but a radically different body, the perfect counterpart of the redeemed spirit that inhabits it and is a partaker in all its blessedness. On the other hand, the lost spirit also has a body, not this same body, but the perfect counterpart of the lost spirit that inhabits it and is a partaker with it in all its misery. Even in the present life, inward spiritual sin causes outward bodily pain. How many men are suffering the most acute bodily pain because of inward sin? I once went to a hospital where there were more than 1,200 people suffering the worst bodily pain, and the physician in charge told me that every one of them was brought there because of one specific sin. Hell is the hospital of the incurables of the universe, where men exist in excruciating and perpetual pain. Memory and Remorse But the physical pain is the least significant feature of hell. Hell is a place of memory and remorse. Remember the picture Jesus has given us of the rich man in hell 
When Abraham said to the rich man, Remember, Luke chapter 16, verse 25. The rich man had not taken much that he had on earth with him, but he had taken one thing. He had taken his memories. You who continue in sin and spend eternity in hell, you won't take much with you that you own, but you will take one thing. You will take your memories. You men will remember the women whose lives you have blasted and ruined, and you women will remember the lives squandered in frivolousness, fashion, and foolishness when you might have been living for God. You will remember the Christ that you rejected and the opportunities for salvation that you despised. There is no torment known to men like the torment of an accusing memories. I have seen strong men weeping like children in my Chicago office. What was the problem? Memories. I have seen one of the strongest, brainiest men I ever knew throw himself on the floor of my office and roll and sob and groan and wail. What was the problem? Memories. I have had people hurry up to me at the close of a service with pale cheeks, drawn lips, and haunted eyes and beg for a private conversation. What was the problem? Memories. You will take your memories with you, and the memory and the conscience that are not at peace in this life through the atoning blood of Christ and the pardoning grace of God will never be at peace. Hell is the place where men remember and suffer. One day Mr. Moody asked me to go out riding, and after we had ridden a little ways, he drove into a cornfield, went out into the middle of the lot, and then he said, This is where it happened. I said, This is where what happened? He said, Don't you remember the last time I was in Chicago, that I told you a certain story, and you said the next time you came to Northfield, you wanted me to show you just where it happened? This is where it happened. What was the story? When Mr. Moody was a mere lad, one day he was hoeing corn, maize, as you call it, across a field with an elderly man. Suddenly the man stopped hoeing and commenced hitting a stone with the hoe. Mr. Moody looked at him. The tears were rolling down his cheeks, and he said, Dwight, when I was a lad like you, I left home to make a living for myself. His house was up on the hill. Mr. Moody pointed to the house as the man spoke. As I came out of the front gate yonder, my mother handed me a testament and said, My boy, seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. The man said, I went to the next town. I went to church on Sunday. The minister got up to preach and he announced his text to be Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He looked right down at me, pointed his finger at me, and said, Young man, seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I went out of the church. I had an awful struggle. It seemed as if the minister were talking to me. I said, No, I will get fixed in life first, and then I will become a Christian. But I found no work there. I went to another town, and I found employment. I went to church, as was my custom, Sunday after Sunday. After I had been going some Sundays, the minister stood up in the pulpit and announced his text. It was Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Then the man said, Dwight, 
He seemed to look right at me and point his finger right at me and say, Young man, seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I got up and went out of church. I went to the cemetery behind the church and sat down on a tombstone. I had an awful fight, but at last I said, No, I will not become a Christian until I get settled in life. Dwight, he said, from that day to this, the Spirit of God has left me, and I have never had the slightest inclination to become a Christian. Mr. Moody said, I did not understand it then. I was not a Christian myself. I went to Boston where I was converted. Then I understood. I wrote to my mother and asked her what had become of that man. She wrote to me, Dwight, he has gone insane, and they have taken him to the Brattleboro Insane Asylum. Mr. Moody said, I went home to Brattleboro and called on him there. He was in his cell, and as I went in, he glared at me, pointed his finger at me, and said, Young man, seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness. But I could do nothing with him. I went back to Boston, but after some time I came home again. I said to my mother, Where is Mr. So-and-so now? Oh, she said, He is home, but he is a helpless imbecile. I went up to his house. There he sat rocking back and forth in a rocking chair, a white-haired man. And as I went into the room, he pointed his finger at me and said, Young man, seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness. He was gone crazy with memory. Hell is the madhouse of the universe, where men and women remember. Tormenting Desire Hell is a place of insatiable and tormenting desire. Remember what Jesus tells us of Dives, the rich man in hell. The rich man said, Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Luke chapter 16, verse 24. What is this a picture of? This indicates there is another thing you will carry into the next world with you. You will carry the desires that you build up here. Hell is the place where desire and passion exist in their highest potency and where there is nothing to gratify them. You who are living in sin and worldliness, what are you doing? You are developing your soul passions and desires until they become so predominant that you will find no gratification in the next world. Happy is that man or woman who sets their affection on the things above during this present life, rather than cultivating desires and aspirations for which there is no satisfaction in the next world. Wretched indeed is that man or woman who cultivates ruling powers, passions, and desires for which there is no gratification in the next world. Shame Hell is a place of shame, the awful, heartbreaking agony of shame. In New York, we had a bank cashier who was in a hurry to get rich. So he appropriated the funds of the bank and invested them, intending to pay them back. But his investment was a failure. For a long time, he kept the books in order to blind the bank examiner. But one day, when the bank examiner was going over the books, he detected the embezzlement. He called in the cashier, who had to acknowledge his fraud. He was arrested, tried, and sent to the state prison. This banker had a beautiful wife and lovely child, a sweet, angel-like little girl. Sometime after his arrest and imprisonment, the little girl came home sobbing with a breaking heart. Oh, she said, Mother, I can never go back to that school again. Send for my books. 
Thinking it was some childish whim, the mother replied, Oh, my darling, of course you will go back. No, she said. Mother, I can never go back. Send for my books. The mother said, Darling, what is the matter? She said, Another little girl said to me today, Your father is a thief. Oh, the cruel stab. The mother saw that she could not go back to school. The wound was fatal. That fair blossom began to fade. A physician was called in, but the despair surpassed all the capacities of his art. The child faded and faded until they laid her upon her bed and the physician said, Madam, I must tell you this is a case in which I am powerless. The child's heart has given way with the agony of the wound. Your child will die. The mother went in and said to her dying child, Darling, is there anything you would like to have me do for you? Oh, she said, yes, mother, send for father. Let him come home and lay his head on the pillow beside mine as he used to do. Ah, but that was just what could not be done. The father was behind iron bars. They sent to the governor of the state, and he said, I have no power in the matter. They sent to the warden of the prison. He said, I have no power in the matter. But hearts were so touched that they got the judge and every member of the jury and the governor, and they formed a petition. They made arrangements whereby the father was allowed to come home under a deputy warden. He reached his home late at night and entered his house. The physician was waiting. He said, I think you had better go in tonight, for I am afraid your child will not live until morning. The father went to the door and opened it. The child looked quickly up. Oh, she said, I knew it was you, father. I knew you would come. Father, come and lay your head beside mine on the pillow just as you used to. And the strong man went and laid his head on the pillow. The child lovingly patted his cheek and died, killed by shame. Depraved Companionship Hell is a place of vile companionships. Do you want to know the society of hell? Read Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. The fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and fornicators and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part shall be in the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That is the society of hell. Oh, but somebody says, many who are brilliant and gifted are going there. That may be true, but listen, how long will it take the most gifted man or woman to sink in such a world as that? Come to Chicago. I can go to the lowest, disreputable establishments and pick out men who were once physicians, lawyers, congressmen, college professors, leading businessmen, and even ministers of the gospel, but are now living with thugs, whoremongers, and everything that is vile and bad. How did they get there? They began to sink. In 1864, when George B. McClellan was nominated on the Democratic ticket for President of the United States, my father was one of the delegates to the presidential convention in Chicago. We then lived in New York. He took us with him nearly to the convention, left us in a quiet country town in Michigan, went on to the convention, and then came back for us. Then we started back east. The train was filled with leading politicians. When we got to Albany... We left the train and got on a Hudson River steamboat. 
This steamboat was filled with the leading Democratic politicians, and we had a political meeting for hours that evening. Man after man of our most gifted orators stood up and spoke to the crowd. But there was one man who stood there who eclipsed everyone else. As that man stood, everybody was spellbound by the power of his eloquence. Everybody was electrified, and as a boy of eight years of age, I was carried away with the marvelous eloquence of this man. Years passed. One day I went out on our front lawn and saw something lying there, all covered with vomit, sleeping heavily, snoring like an overfed hog. When I went up to it, I found it was a man, and, alas, it was the very man who that night had carried everyone on that ship by storm. He had wasted away. He died in a madhouse from alcohol and tobacco. During our World's Fair, there was a women's board appointed to receive the dignitaries of the Old World, to receive the members of our nobility and the members of the royalty of Spain and other countries. A woman stood near Mrs. Potter Palmer, who was the ruling one of the Women's Commission, dazzling people by her beauty and by her wit. Just before I left Chicago to go around the world, some friends of mine went down to the slums of Chicago and hunted for poor, forlorn people that they might help. They found a poor creature with nails grown like bird's claws, long and tangled hair twisted full of filth, a face that had not been washed for weeks and clad in a single filthy garment, a wreck. And when they talked with her, they discovered... She was that woman who had stood so near Mrs. Potter Palmer during all the honors of the World's Fair. She had fallen through the use of cocaine. Hopelessness Hell is a world without hope. There are men who tell you that the word Ionios, translated everlasting, never means everlasting. But when they tell you that, they most likely have not looked into the matter, or they tell you a deliberate falsehood. It is true that it does not necessarily mean everlasting. Whether it does or not has to be determined by the context. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, we read, These shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And if it means eternal, everlasting, in one part of the verse, by every known law of exegesis, it must mean the same in the other part of the verse. Nobody questions that it does mean everlasting in the one case. Furthermore, there is another expression, eistus eonas ton eonan, unto the ages of the ages, used twelve times in one book, eight times about the existence of God and the duration of His reign, once about the duration of the blessedness of the righteous, and in every remaining instance about the punishment, the beast, the false prophet, and the unrepentant. This declaration is the strongest known expression for absolute endlessness. Men, I have hunted through my Bible for one ray of hope for men who die unrepentant. I look for just a ray of hope for when the passage is properly interpreted by the right laws of exegesis, but I have failed after years of search to find one. I am familiar with the passages that men quote, but they will not bear the burden placed upon them when carefully interpreted in their context with an honest attempt to discover what they really mean without making them fit a theory. The New Testament does not hold out one ray of hope for those who die without Christ. Anyone who does dares to do what God has not done. Forever and ever, 
is the never-ceasing wail of that restless sea of fire. Such is hell, a place of bodily anguish, a place of agony of conscience, a place of insatiable torment and desire, a place of evil companionship, a place of shame, and a place without hope. How shall we escape it? That may be answered in a word. There is but one way to escape hell, and that is by the acceptance of Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Surrender to Him as your Lord and Master, confess Him before the world, and live a life of obedience, demonstrating your faith. The Bible is perfectly plain about that. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. John chapter 3 verse 36 tells us, that he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. In Matthew we read, that whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 33. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 7 through 9 says, The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So the whole question is this, will you accept Christ right now? Hell is too awful to risk it for a year, it is too awful to risk it for a month. It is too awful to risk it for a week. It is too awful to risk it for a day. Your eternal destiny and mine may be settled in 24 hours. It is too awful to risk it for an hour or even until I have finished my sermon. Take Christ now. I know what some of you are saying or what the devil is whispering to you. He is saying, don't be a coward. Don't be frightened into repentance. Is it cowardice to be moved by rational fear? Is it heroism to rush into unnecessary danger? Suppose when I go out, I look up and there is a building on fire. A man is sitting at an upper window reading a book. I see his peril and I lift my hand to my mouth and say, Flee for your life, the house is on fire. Then suppose that man should lean out the window and shout back, I am no coward, you can't frighten me. Would he be playing the hero? Or would he be playing the fool? One night I went to see my parents at the old home. They are both in heaven now. As I stepped off the one train, I stepped on to another track. Unknown to me, an express train was coming down that other track. A cab driver of the town saw my peril, put his hand to his mouth and cried, Mr. Tory, there is a train coming, get off the track. I did not shout back, I am no coward, you can't scare me. I was not such a fool. No. I got off the track, or I would not be able to tell the story. You are on the track. I hear the not far distant thunder and rumble of the wrath of God as it comes hurrying on, and I cry, Get off the track. Receive Christ now. Take him now. If you are reasonable, you will. If you don't, you will not be playing the hero, but playing the fool.